Welcome to Waterloo, a grim and bloody battle that has grown famous in myth and legend in European history. But here, on the Age of Victoria podcast, we're going to dig a little deeper, go beyond the myths, the stereotypes, the easy presentation in artwork and computer games, and find out what really happened at Waterloo, and how it felt to be there at the great downfall of Napoleon Bonaparte. Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez-Packham. Thank you for tuning in. It's been a long road for us, getting to Waterloo, but I can assure you it felt like an even longer road for the men marching with Napoleon, Wellington and Blücher. This episode is the first in what I'm expecting to be a series on Waterloo. There's a huge amount to cover and I want to get us away from just the simple tactics and lists of men and casualties to really get an understanding of what Waterloo was, why it happened, and some of the myths that have grown up around it and about it. But I also want to find the human elements that I think this podcast has focused on so well. So today is going to be probably the morning of Waterloo and the setup, and maybe if we can manage it, the early uh, attacks of the day. I will also in this series want to cover the main attacks by the French, the huge cavalry actions of the day, and linked to those, I will want us to have a look at some of the artwork of Waterloo by Lady Elizabeth Butler, especially the infamous painting, The Charge of the Scots Greys. It really is a fantastic painting. It's very evocative. It's a sort of cornerstone piece of Victorian military artwork in a way but it does as you can imagine uh, propagate a certain view of the battle and of how the cavalry operated and what they were doing and why that isn't quite in line with reality so we'll want to unpick some of those myths there's going to be a lot of material up on the website to help you with these battles Uh, I'm going to have a map up of not just the battlefield, but one of the farm of Hougoumont, uh, which was absolutely key to Wellington's position for the day and um, for French attacks, and also La Haison, which was the other key position in Wellington's line. After we've done the attacks on Hougoumont, the main French assaults for the day, the arrival of the Prussians, the cavalry actions and things like that, we'll then move along a bit and look at the late stages of the day, how the French were coping with things turning against them. We'll want to look at the Imperial Guard, the myths, the legends, the closing hours of the battle, of course. And in a separate special episode, which is part of the Waterloo series, I'm planning on dealing with the medical aspects of Waterloo and Napoleonic medicine. And as you can see, there's so much information here that really it does justify a series on Waterloo. Okay, I hope you're caught up with the previous episodes. 
you know how we got to Waterloo. It is actually time to begin the Battle of Waterloo. It was one of the greatest battles of European history, and it was coming after a night of brutal weather. Waterloo was also to be one of the last of its kind. Never again would Europe see the massed ranks, finely dressed, superbly drilled troops, fighting in such a tiny field of battle, barely six square miles. Until the outbreak of the Franco-Prussian War, the continent would be largely free of large-scale conflict. The men, the men were probably wondering if they had been wise to sign up at all. The life of a 19th century civilian could be brutal, and the army at least offered regular-ish meals. Still, those who had enlisted for hunger might be about to pay a high price for their meal. Imagine the desperation you have to feel to have joined the army to march into the cannon's mouth, to be forced to stand in line sometimes motionless until commanded to move or act. Men being blasted to pieces around you by cannon shot, black smoke burning your eyes and drying your mouth like sandpaper. At any moment, enemy infantry could emerge from the smoke, or worse, the dreaded French cavalry could catch you by surprise, riding you down or splitting your skull before you could form square. But these were the risks of the soldier's life. Hunger was a powerful motive, well captured in a ballad written by Joseph Lees in 1805 called John O'Grin The ballad was originally written in the Oldham dialect, but I'm going to read out the modern English standard version. Quote, Says John to his wife on a hot summer's day, I've resolved in Greenfield no longer to stay, for I'll go to Oldham as fast as I can. So farewell to Greenfield and farewell to Nan. For a soldier I'll be, and brave Oldham I'll see, and I'll battle with the French. Dear John, then said Nan, and she bitterly cried, Will you be one of the foot, or you means for to ride? Zounds, woman, I'll ride either an ass or a mule, before I'll cower in Greenfield as black as the old devil, both hungry and starving and never a farthing. It really would drive any man mad. Yes, John, since we came to Greenfield to dwell, we've had many poor meals, I can very well tell. Poor meal, begad! Yes, that I know very well. There's been two days this week, we've had nothing at all. I'm almost decided, before I'll put up with it, I'll fight either Spanish or French. Then says my Auntie Margaret, Ah, John, you're so rash. I'd never go to Oldham, but in England I'd stop. It matters not, Madge, for to Oldham I'll go. I'm nearly starved to death. Somebody should know. First Frenchman I find, I'll tell him my mind, and if he'll not fight, he shall run. Then down the brow I came, for we lived at the top. I thought I'd reach Oldham before I would stop. By gad how they stared when I got to the mumps. My old hat in my hand, my clogs full of stumps, but I soon told them, I'm going to Oldham, and I'd have a battle with the French. I kept straight on to the lane, and to Oldham I went. I asked a recruit if they'd made up their count. Now, now, honest lad, for he talked like a king, go with me through the street, and to you I will bring, where, if you're willing, you may have a shilling. Begad, I thought. This was remarkable news. He brought me to the place where they measure their height, and if they are the height... They are nothing about weight. I reached myself and stretched, and never did flinch. Says the man, I believe you're my lad to an inch. I thought this will do. I shall have guineas enough. Begad, Oldham. Brave Oldham for me. So farewell, Greenfield. A soldier I've made. I've got new shoes and a very nice cockade. I'll fight for old England as hard as I can. Either French, Dutch or Spanish. 
To me it's all one, I'll make them stare, like a new started hare, and I'll tell them from Oldham I've come, end quote. And so, many desperate men passed a cold, wet night on the eve of Waterloo. Not that the Emperor Napoleon was passing a cold, wet night, followed by a scramble for food, like most of the combatants on either side. And he spent the night in a comfortable farmhouse called La Caillou. Whether he himself was comfortable is debatable. Some historians have stated that the emperor was in agony from serious piles. Napoleon's brother Jerome states that Napoleon was suffering from acute piles and was in considerable pain. We know from the famous French physician Dr. Larry that Napoleon had to be treated for piles using hot cloths just after the Battle of Ligny. However his night passed, he rose early, around 0430, and began issuing orders. Lacayu is still there, and if you have a chance, you can visit it and see Napoleon's camp bed and other bits of... Uh, pieces of interest from the period. At around 0800 hours, Napoleon had breakfast and a conference with his generals. His beloved personal cockery had turned up and he was feeling somewhat more optimistic. After breakfast, the table was cleared and maps spread out. These maps would have been difficult to read for a modern person. They were small, drawn in ink or pencils, and without the clear colour coding that we are used to today from the modern Ordnance Survey style maps. Often they were ad hoc and prone to significant errors. Whilst contour lines technically existed, they weren't used in the same way as today. Wellington's map is very good, but very hard to read. The French map, the original, is terrible. Uh, And indeed it has recently been claimed that it was filled with errors and caused much confusion. Indeed, um, there is an interesting article in the Daily Telegraph um, about a French documentary that recently covered the topic. Quote, Napoleon was relying on a false map for his strategy in the last battle, said Frank Ferrand, the maker of a documentary broadcast on French television. This explains why he mistook the lie of the land and was disoriented on the battlefield. It is certainly one of the factors that led to his defeat. The strategic farm of Mont Saint-Jean was shown a kilometre from its real location, and one kilometre was the range of his cannons, so you can see what a difference it must have made, he said. The false map used by one of his officers, and identical to Napoleon's own, was discovered by Bernard Coppins, a Belgium illustrator and historian, and it's still stained with blood at a Brussels museum. We compared the printed map used on the battlefield with the original hand-drawn one it was copied from, Mr. Ferrand said. We realised it was a printing error. Not only was the farm in the wrong place, but the map showed a bend in the road that did not exist. He added, We also found a letter from his younger brother, Jerome Bonaparte, which described him as looking completely lost on the battlefield of Waterloo, end quote. Regardless of the maps, pre-battle talks have to be morale-boosting. No matter how grim the situation, the Supreme Commander cannot convey defeatism without courting disaster. In his book, Vienna 1814, David King gave an excellent account of the post-breakfast discussions. Quote, We have 90 chances in our favour and not 10 against us, Napoleon said calculating the odds of success that day. Marshal Ney, however, was troubled, fearing that Wellington would sneak away in a retreat and the French would miss the opportunity for a decisive victory. 
Napoleon rejected the possibility outright. Britain could no longer leave the scene, he said. Wellington has rolled the dice, and they are in our favour. Marshal Soult, the recently appointed Chief of Staff, was concerned, though, for different reasons. Soult had fought Wellington in Spain several times without success. The British infantry was the devil himself, as he once put it. Perhaps Napoleon should have called Marshal Rouchy and the 33,000 men whom he had dispatched the previous day to pursue the Prussians. Napoleon bluntly dismissed the suggestion. Because you have been beaten by Wellington, you consider him a great general. Wellington is a bad general, Napoleon continued. The English are bad troops, and this will be like eating breakfast. I earnestly hope so, Soult replied, end quote. There was, of course, the usual grumbling of men marching into position, gunners setting up their pieces and muskets being cleared and loaded. Surgeons were laying out tools ready to take care of the injured. It was, at times, a depressing and frightening prospect going into battle. But his generals at breakfast were downright gloomy beyond the normal. Napoleon didn't normally like to eat breakfast with others. He was noted as somewhat of an indifferent eater, with poor manners and bad taste in wine. Probably he felt he needed his commanders together to plan and to put some fire into them. Breakfast has become justly famous, though, which you can't often say about breakfast as a rule. I can't emphasise enough, though, the importance for military commanders of keeping a positive mindset. Of course, this shouldn't blind a commander to reality, but it is worryingly easy for a commander to talk himself and his army into defeat. Also, Napoleon actually had fairly good reasons not to wait Wellington highly so far. The Duke of Wellington had been caught flat-footed by the invasion, then made dangerous mistakes in his responses to the attacks at Quatre Bras. Balanced against that, the French marshals had been repeatedly beaten by Wellington in Spain. They were convinced a frontal attack against British infantry was hopeless and only flanking moves would work. General Raoul said, quote, I consider the English infantry to be impregnable, end quote, and went on to say that flanking attacks were required to beat them. This was not the answer that Napoleon was looking for, as he was planning direct frontal assaults for the day. It appeared clear to him that the weather and the mud would stop quick movement. He also dismissed suggestions that he should summon Marshal Rouchy back with his men. Fatally, though, he accepted suggestions to delay the start of the battle to allow the ground to dry out for more artillery. In practice, this was simply not um, a sensible decision. The grounds underneath Waterloo was actually um, heavy clay soil, so although the tops of the ridges would dry out throughout the morning, the main parts of the valley would remain uh, waterlogged for several days. Napoleon's orderly, Jardin Annie, gave the following account. Quote, on the 18th, Napoleon left the bivouac, that is to say the village of Caillou, on horseback. At half past nine in the morning, came up to take up his stand, half a league in advance of a hill, where he could discern the movements of the British army. There, he dismounted and with his field glasses, endeavoured to discover all the movements in the enemy's line. The chief of staff suggested that they should begin the attack. He replied that they must wait. But the enemy commenced his attack at 11 o'clock, and the cannonading began on all sides. End quote. And so, now the emperor was ready. Now was the time to start in earnest. The displays, the careful moves, the clever plans, the time for all that was past. Napoleon had to beat the Allied army. I am repeating the word allied here 
not the British Army. That is seriously important. We must get past the historical airbrushing. Wellington's army was an international mix from England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, Hanover, the Netherlands, the West Indies, Brunswick and Nassau. It was a truly international force. Only 36% of it was actually British and even that 36% was neither entirely English nor entirely white. I want to tell you about Private George Rose. Fascinating man. He was born as a slave in Jamaica, but escaped in 1809. Somehow, he made it to London, where he joined the 73rd Foot. He served in Ireland, where he became a Methodist, and then later served in Germany and the Netherlands in 1813 to 1814. He was known to be in the thick of combat quatre bras, but today would be a new level of hell for the former slave-turned-soldier. All of his hopes and ambitions rested on surviving the day without being injured, maimed or killed. And Private Rose wasn't the only black soldier fighting for the Allies. What I find really fascinating, though, is that it wasn't the black soldiers who were the target of disdain of most of the British and Scottish soldiers. The real vitriol seemed to be aimed at the Irish had a very complex relationship with the Scottish and English. As you will see in later episodes, there was immense social tension involving the Irish, and they were accused of stealing English and Welsh jobs during the Victorian period. My speculation is that black soldiers were not common, and they were often driven to prove themselves of being as good or better than their white comrades. That probably made the relationship easier And since they weren't in direct competition with the English for large-scale employment, they were viewed more as a novelty than as a threat. This isn't to say that racism didn't exist. It most certainly did, to a huge degree. It's just that it was a good deal more complicated than might be assumed. By being posted to elite regiments to serve as trumpeters, black soldiers often gained respect. Yet at the same time... Even this made them victims of racism, since the fashion for black musicians in the British Army was linked to aristocrats displaying their wealth by having black servants, and this filtered through to the more elite guard regiments. Still, service in the West Indies and in India accustomed a lot of white British regiments to non-white soldiers and civilians, creating a more open racial relationship in the early part of the 19th century than would be seen in the mid to late 19th century. It was, of course, still racist, and promotion was exceptionally hard even for the best black soldiers, who encountered serious prejudice from being regarded as both less disciplined and morally inferior. I'm just mentioning this because... I've yet to see much uh, real artwork that shows black troops serving at Waterloo, despite their contribution. There is a piece of art I found called The Recruiting Officer, which shows a black soldier as a trumpeter in a recruiting party. Most people who are only vaguely familiar with Waterloo seem to think of it as a triumph of white English soldiers, perhaps helped by some Scots beating the French. As you've already seen, in reality things were much more complicated 
But this kind of um, what we would call whitewashing today was very prevalent um, for the Victorians in their myth building. And Waterloo uh, would become um, a kind of talismanic event to many Victorian soldiers. Uh, the famous expression is Waterloo was one on the playing fields of Eton, of course. And so it helped cement this myth of aristocratic privilege uh, that was at odds with reality. Um, certainly it didn't reflect the diverse makeup of nations at Waterloo, but it was important for the way the Victorians saw themselves. So we need to understand that, because even if a myth is wrong, it might only be based on small elements of fact, myths are actually very important for how people view themselves. Um, and in some ways, the myth uh, creates a reality for the people who believe it, even if it isn't actually based entirely on accurate fact. Certainly, Wellington displayed little trust in his foreign allies. He broke them up in the main, scattering them around the army uh, by including foreign brigades in British divisions, thereby mixing British officers in with the foreign formations. This caused a lot of resentment. Many senior officers felt slighted, and it was hard for the foreign troops to accept strange British officers appearing to take over, some worried that the British were going to be using them as cannon fodder. Wellington's near open disdain for some of his allies didn't help. He was scathing about his allied contingents. Early in the battle, a few hundred Nassau troops from their skirmish companies were desperately holding the woods around Hugomont against odds of around ten to one. They were driven off after an hour of heavy fighting and retired to the main farm buildings under intense pressure, having inflicted heavy casualties on the French. Yet Wellington was annoyed and remarked to a Russian attaché, quote, It is with these scoundrels that a battle must be won. End quote. Now, to be fair to Wellington, a lot of the nations under his command were either newly created, had patchy military records, or in the case of the Belgians, had recently fought for Napoleon. Some Belgian units were wearing basically Napoleonic uniforms with the cap badges changed. Still, Wellington had extensive experience operating coalition armies. Even if his British officers or troops displayed their usual sense of superiority, whether justified or not, Wellington knew that true success depended on the Prussians. Wellington was only willing to fight at Waterloo because he was convinced that at least one Prussian corps would reach him to help. Indeed, Wellington had not been idle. He had also been up early, since at least 0300 hours, writing orders and letters. At around 0600 hours, he began the serious work of the day. Certainly, it would be a trying day for Wellington. Much like Napoleon, he was physically extremely brave and would be routinely under heavy fire during battles. Curiously, no one is actually quite sure exactly when the Battle of Waterloo began. This is probably a very good point to discuss time and timekeeping. As a modern listener, you will have a highly developed sense of accurate time. Your day will be ruled not by the passage of the sun across the yardarm, but by the precise 
minutes and hours that make up your structured day. This was not the common experience for human history. Throughout most human history, measurement did not need to be anything like as precise, at least until the coming of the railways, much of the United Kingdom and many other countries would keep many different times across their territory so that one town might find itself hours ahead of a neighbour which was only a few miles down a road. I can give you the precise time of sunrise, of course. That can easily be verified by astronomy. It's not difficult to work out times for sunrises and sunsets, lunar phases and eclipses over the centuries. But a lot of the times I'm referring to in this battle are being given precisely because a source mentions them. That's misleading, though. Time was not standardised in 1815. Local times varied widely. The reason naval chronometers were set to Greenwich Mean Time as a standard was to make sure that ship navigators kept their time from a standard point so that they could work out a ship's longitude. And that was not, however, a universal practice, and it certainly rarely extended beyond the Navy. The armies at Waterloo would have recorded time differently. The quality of watches and timepieces would have varied, and they would have become damaged during the campaign. Watches were usually set by solar time at noon, and had to be kept carefully wound. A British captain, for instance, might swear blind that a French cavalry charge hit his regiment at 1400 hours as part of a large French cavalry charge, but his watch might be badly off, and he might be mistaking a small action for part of a wider movement that wasn't actually happening. Battles are not like computer games, with set turns where a unit moves, then another unit, then the player turn ends and the computer takes a turn. Battles have an ebb and flow to them, more like a game of football that moves with teams generally attacking or defending, depending on whether they have possession, but with individuals in the team moving forward or backwards against the flow. Even in the most vicious battles, and Waterloo was certainly that, there were moments of slack as men paused to reload, reform, spit, urinate, look for bits of kit, swallow some spirits, or wait for orders. Piecing together a coherent timeline of a battle like Waterloo means relying on the mass of letters, memories, diaries, accounts, official dispatches, reports and interviews. Added on top of this, are the layers of layers of later books, articles, studies and research. This leads to a narrative. What narrative is told and what lessons are drawn from it are often down to the perceptions and biases of the individual historian. We can know some facts as definitive, others are more of a speculation or a reasonable conclusion. We know, for example, that there were a series of great massed cavalry charges by the French against the British positions. We can be confident that Marshal Ney ordered these charges. We can be confident that Napoleon carried on with these charges once they had been launched. We can reasonably conclude, therefore, that Napoleon carried on because he felt once the charges were launched, then they had to be carried on. We can know that these charges had limited artillery support. We can speculate that if they had been supported by horse artillery and had spiked British guns, then Napoleon would have broken the British position, and with it, the Allied line. We can then construct a narrative like this. Marshal Ney foolishly ordered a mass cavalry charge against the British, either in the mistaken belief that they were retreating or that they were so shaken that the massed cavalry would break them. 
as Marshal Ney was a somewhat aggressive commander and not a good planner, he failed to bring up artillery to give close support to break any determined resistance. Had he done so, he would have broken the British squares. His men also missed the opportunity to spite the British guns. His lack of clear thinking and failure to exercise close control resulted in the slaughter of the elite French cavalry. And this was an inexcusable blunder. Not only was it the wrong charge and the wrong decision, but he allowed it to carry on too long. Worse, in wasting the cavalry, he exposed the entire French army to disaster. As without the cavalry, the army was horrifically vulnerable when moving and had nothing to cover their retreat. I'll be honest and say that is a fairly conventional narrative. It seems plausible on the evidence... It doesn't contradict any major known facts of the day, and the assessment of many professional military observers and commentators agreed with it. Still, there is a completely different historical narrative that you can construct on the exact same set of facts. It would sound more like this. Marshal Ney had commanded a number of assaults against the British during the afternoon. The action at La Haye Sainte had been vicious, and Hougoumont had turned into a brutal meat grinder. The battle was heavy with smoke, and the great guns of the Grand Battery of the French had been pounding the British and Allied position for hours. The Prussians were not yet there. The French had already mauled the British at Quatre Bras. There was only a thin line of infantry left, and they had barely repulsed the great French assault by Darlion. Certainly Darlion's men had been shattered by the British cavalry, but up to that point, the British and Dutch were crumbling. Now, the British cavalry was in tatters, and now there was movement. Some British gunners appeared to be retiring. The British must be on the last gasp. Only the British line regiments held the Allied regiments in place. After Quatre Bras, Hougoumont, Darlion's mass attack, the loss of their heavy cavalry, now must be the time, as they wavered, to push them over the edge. No army could take the pounding that they had. Now was the time for the heavy cavalry. They just had to get over the crest of the hill and on to the Brussels road, and then it was over. Ney was on horseback, with only telescopes, messengers and his own eyes to gather information. Who knows what Marshal Ney really thought, but perhaps the memory of Marshal Murat's great charges, always launched with exquisite timing, came to his mind. Surely Murat would have charged. Now perhaps was his moment too. Marshal Ney had always led from the front, always pushed the assault, and he was stung by the criticism of inaction at Quatre Bras. Now just scatter the British gunners and run down the unsteady enemy. Then even the most disciplined troops would break as they saw their friends run. This second narrative is also plausible and might well be what Marshal Ney actually did think and experience. Now in hindsight, the massed cavalry charge without infantry or artillery support was the wrong decision. But perhaps Marshal Ney really did make a reasonable decision on the information he had in the position he was in. Waterloo, and indeed almost any history you actually start digging into, is very much made up of these kinds of narrative constructions. Some are helpful, some are merely pedestrian, and some are misleading. It is very hard to ever really know what someone like Napoleon or Wellington or Ney was really thinking and understanding at the time. All we can do is draw reasonable inferences based on what we know of what they did and the circumstances they were in, trying hard to filter it through their personalities as we understand them. Just bear this in mind as we cover the battle in detail. 
Now, whatever their background and whatever their allegiance, the time had come. One of the great battles of European history was about to be fought. It would change the politics and shape the nations of the continent for the next century. It is worth setting aside those pop culture images of Waterloo, that it was neat lines, puffs of smoke and splendid epic warfare. It was a truly vicious battle that resulted in many men being horrifically wounded or killed or left with crippling psychological injuries that would leave them changed for life. What is especially unusual about Waterloo is that it was such a tiny battlefield for such a huge number of men. Let's get some perspective on the battlefield and the scale. Now remember the figures I'm about to give are very much approximations when it comes to ancient battles. Alexander the Great's victory at Issus was probably fought between 40,000 Greeks and 100,000 Persians, including their allies. The Battle of Cannae was a key battle in the wars between Rome and Carthage. It is remembered as being a supreme example of tactical brilliance by General Hannibal Barker against Rome. It was fought between around 50,000 Carthaginians and 84,000 Romans. The Battle of Adrianople could have had around 25,000 Eastern Imperial Romans against maybe 80,000 Visigoths and Alans. After the fall of Rome and the transition to the Byzantine Empire, the size of battles in Europe dropped dramatically. The pivotal battle in European history of the Middle Ages probably happened at Tours, where the Muslim conquests of Europe were finally checked, and this involved around 15,000 to 25,000 on each side. The Battle of Hastings you know, 1066 and all that, was probably down to around 8,000 to 12,000 a side. And the Battle of Yorktown had perhaps 28,000 men involved, mostly on the American side. By contrast, at Waterloo, the Allied army was 68,000 strong and the French 72,000. They would fight crammed into an area no more than three miles wide. Marshal Grouchy was marching nearby with 33,000 men and the Prussians had around 50,000 men in the combat area. That means around 223,000 men were involved in and around Waterloo and Wavre on the 18th of June, 1815. That's actually slightly more than at the Battle of Gettysburg. The rain and Napoleon's decision to batter the enemy rather than manoeuvre meant that this would be a meat grinder of a battle. Slogging and pounding were going to be the defining features of the day. More men than were present at Alexander's great battle at Issus were going to fight to the death in a tiny area between two ridges in the mud, the horse shit, blood and smoke. Now think about the numbers involved here. The French First Corps under General Darlion was 22,000 men strong. That is nearly the size of the army that the Eastern Roman Empire could muster at Adrianople. Despite all the advances since the days of ancient Rome in technology, gunpowder and command structures, the way the army was actually controlled wasn't that much more technically advanced than that of the Romans. Orders were still shouted, trumpeted, drummed and then sent by messenger. Men still moved by marching or riding, but the size of the armies being commanded were huge and the weapons much more deadly. The consequences for mistakes were more punishing than ever. A Roman cohort ordered to march and mistakenly exposing itself could usually rely on fighting its way out of trouble or stubbornly holding on till other cohorts could come to rectify the problem. A misdeployed British regiment, on the other hand, 
could be wiped out by French artillery in minutes. In the last episode on Quatre Bras, I mentioned a British regiment that mistook a French cavalry regiment for a friendly Brunswick cavalry regiment. They didn't form square and were shattered, losing 287 men in minutes. Now, just at the time when army commanders could make fewer and fewer mistakes, they were having to command more and more men in more intricate ways that made the chances of a blunder even greater. Just to get a Napoleonic army onto a battlefield, pointed in the right direction and fighting was a major achievement. By the end of the day at Waterloo, Napoleon was trying to do the impossible by fighting two battles at the same time. One against the Allied army of Wellington and one against the approaching Prussians. The fact that he still nearly won is astonishing. What was the battlefield of Waterloo itself like? Why was it here that the retreating Wellington had chosen to stand? Above all else, Wellington was a master at identifying and using terrain. For Napoleon, the terrain was often incidental to the battle. It was speed, aggression, clever moves and great timing that won his battles. For Wellington, battles were always avoided unless the odds favoured him. Terrain was always used to offset the weaknesses of his force and play to its strengths. To understand the battlefield, we need to zoom out a bit and then zoom back in to the level of the individuals at standing height. Waterloo on Wellington's side was a really strong position. It was a high, long ridge that was at right angles to the road to Brussels. It had a light wood behind it and at the very top of the ridge was a sunken road, hidden from view. The crossroads of the road to Brussels and the sunken lane was a nice summit with a large elm tree where Wellington made his HQ for most of the day. Some senior officers and Napoleon himself criticised Wellington's choice of battlefield, but the position had been carefully chosen by Wellington and he kept it up his sleeve. Above all his many other talents, Wellington was a genius picking and using terrain. The position allowed Wellington to hide much of his force from French view. That gave him surprise in his movements. It also allowed him to shield much of his force from artillery fire, especially his precious British line infantry, his supply wagons and his medical facilities. The Allied army would be kept sheltered and supplied. It also had a wood behind it. Whilst to many that seemed like a dangerous disadvantage, Wellington had studied it previously. He knew that actually it had very little undergrowth and so his army could slip through it if retreat was necessary. He also knew that the battlefield position had two farms, Hougamont and La Haye-Sant, that stood out in front of the Allied ridge like bastions, with another farm further away to his left. Rather than creating grand artillery batteries of cannons like the French, Wellington supplemented his line regiments with light guns to boost their already impressive firepower. At ground level, there were good views of the valley and the French positions, whilst the Allied troops were carefully concealed. It is also worth noting that Wellington was only willing to fight at Waterloo because he expected the Prussians to arrive to help him. He would not have chosen to make a stand here unless the Prussians were coming. He received messages indicating that they were, so his left flank was left in the air, precisely because he expected them to arrive from his left and anchor it. His centre 
was carefully hidden behind the ridge and his right was anchored and protected by Hougoumont. Interestingly, he actually sent 17,000 men even further to his right, away from the main battle. These were to be his safety valve. They were to keep the routes to the sea open in case the Prussians didn't come and to prevent Napoleon swinging round to his right to cut him off or to attack his flank. Wellington's plan for the day was simple. Select highly defensible terrain, hide troops out of sight and put small forces into his bastions to hamper French assaults. Be miserly using his reserves, cling to the ridge, wear the French down and wait for the Prussians to swing the weight of numbers decisively against the French. In boxing terms, it was classic technical defensive fighting from a scientific master of the ring. Napoleon also had a fairly simple plan. He wanted to keep the Imperial Guard in reserve. He would pound the British with his artillery, use his cavalry to force them into squares, and then send his infantry to punish them, before perhaps using the guard to break the most stubborn points of resistance. For the guard were only committed at the point of victory or to stave off utter defeat. He would smash the Allied army out of the way, crush it, and then take Brussels, then swing round to rejoin Grouchy and pursue the retreating Prussians. Carrying on the boxing metaphor, Napoleon was abandoning boxing science in favour of hard punches in a close-up match. Napoleon seemed to believe that the Prussians were a spent force after Ligny, and that Grouchy would be able to push them back to stop them joining Wellington. He also clearly seemed to feel that manoeuvre at Waterloo was counterproductive. The ground was still a mud bath. Trying to get round Wellington's right would simply force Wellington back towards the Prussians, not away from them. Moving Wellington's left would potentially just push Wellington back along his lines of supply and achieve very little beyond delaying the battle. There are a huge number of myths around Waterloo about Wellington, Napoleon, the various forces, about who could have done what and what would have been done better. Historians and armchair generals have a lot of trouble remaining impartial on events and the actions of the armies. Revisions can range from Napoleon the incompetent to how Napoleon the brilliant was robbed of his triumph by the Prussians. Indeed, if you read some accounts, you could believe that Napoleon actually won Waterloo. Most accounts in English refer to Waterloo as a British victory, or even as an English one over the French, where Wellington proved himself the better general than Napoleon. As always on this podcast, I have to say that the reality is much more complicated. But by the end of the day, the French army was in a panicked rout. No amount of spin can change the end result, and Napoleon was shortly to be out of power and in British captivity. But it was as a result of a multinational effort, and was much more than just Wellington beating Napoleon. How events got to that point, though, is truly fascinating. If you've listened to my last episode, you've heard me speculating on the role of stress played in the battle, and in people's decisions. Every Napoleonic battle was stressful. But Waterloo was going to be on another level. I cannot imagine the mental strain on Wellington, Napoleon, Marshal Ney, Marshal Soult and the many others. Making good decisions under stress is very hard. When stressed, humans often fall back on practice responses, whether or not they fit the circumstances. Napoleon's physical condition was well below healthy after a difficult start to the campaign. 
Marshal Ney seemed to be suffering from PTSD since Russia in 1812 and was clearly tormented by his decisions to betray first Napoleon and then the restored Bourbon monarchy. Marshal Soult was a poor chief of staff and in any event hadn't been in the role long enough to get a real grip. Not that all of the Allied commanders were in great shape. Prince Blücher had been extremely badly injured two days before the battle when he was nearly killed just after the Battle of Ligny when his horse rolled on him and the French advance nearly swept him up and bayoneted him. He was also not entirely psychologically stable and was extremely bloodthirsty for revenge on the French. Lieutenant General Sir Thomas Picton, GCB, was a hard-fighting Welsh officer. He had been recommended to Wellington by Francisco de Miranda and had served with distinction during the Peninsula War. As an aside, if you were following Mike Duncan's Excellent Revolutions podcast, yes, it was the same Francisco de Miranda. He really did get everywhere. Anyway, Picton was also suffering from PTSD by the time of the Hundred Days campaign and had to be pressed by Wellington to accept command of the 5th Infantry Division. This was a fine division indeed, including as it did elements of the Highlanders, Old Line Regiments, Rifles, a Hanoverian Brigade and Horse Artillery. It was a division that would see action in various forms, in the Boer Wars and both World Wars, until finally being disbanded in April 2012. Now not only was Picton mentally unwell, but he had actually been shot through the hip at Quatre Bras, but he and his servant had concealed the wound so that he could continue to fight. He gained a glorious reputation after Waterloo, and was probably pretty crucial to the British of the day, so history tends to ignore his earlier conviction for torturing slaves during his career. He was only acquitted because his lawyers successfully argued that torture without trial was legal under the colony's Spanish law at the time. The Prince of Orange, on the other hand, was not a decorated or brilliant officer and was inexperienced and incompetent. But it wasn't just the senior officers who were under stress. Battalion and company level officers faced the additional problem of giving orders in difficult circumstances and translating the high-level orders from more senior staff officers into battlefield directives. I'm going to play you a short clip now. It's taken from a film, um, which I'll be honest, I haven't seen it, um, but I did hear the clip of it, and it gives you a wonderful example of the sheer level of noise and complexity that you might hear in a Napoleonic battle. The film is actually um, a recreation of the Battle of New Orleans. Um, So the period is actually within a couple of years of Waterloo and the sounds are actually very authentic. And it gives you a lovely flavour of what people would actually have to deal with. Now imagine, as you listen to this, that you have to actually give orders in this cacophony of noise. Well, we've covered quite a lot now. We've seen how the people felt about the battle, where they were, and the relative sizes. But now, the Emperor Napoleon was ready. Now was the time to start in earnest. The displays, the careful moves, the clever plans. The time for much of that was past. 
Napoleon had to beat the Allied army. The Armée du Nord performed its final grand review on the slopes of La Belle Alliance, opposite the Allied line. This was the last time the great display of French Napoleonic finery was laid out for the enemy. Trumpets bearing, drums beating, flags flying in the wind, eagles gleamed in the sun and shouts rang out of Vive l'Empereur. Just the spectacle would have been awe-inspiring. Join me on the 1st of November for part two of Waterloo. Okay, thank you for listening. Um, Feel free to contact me at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. That's ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments or concerns. You can also visit our website at ageofvictoriapodcast.com. There's a load of great material on there and I'll keep on adding extra maps and pictures as we go on to support the episodes. The show can be downloaded from iTunes, Stitcher, etc. And if you want to help support the show, please do visit the website, or better yet, leave a review on iTunes. Growing our community is a fantastic way to keep this podcast going, and the reviews really help. (laughs) 